0: Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Eric Goldstein, who is curator of mechanical arts and numismatics at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. He received his undergraduate degree from the Parsons School of Design and has spent 12 years as a professional numismatist and consultant. He also instructs a three-year syllabus on the coins, medals, and paper money of Colonial America as part of the American Numismatics Association's Summer Seminar. Today, you'll hear about his book, The Swords of George Washington, including information about the accompanying museum exhibition at Mount Vernon, how many swords Washington owned, and the fascinating stories behind some of these weapons. And now, Drs. Goldstein and Bradburn.
1: All right. Hello. This is Doug Bradburn here at the George Washington Library at Mount Vernon. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Eric Goldstein today, uh, who is the curator of mechanical arts and newsmatics at Colonial Williamsburg. That is correct. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to the library, George Washington's library. I'm
2: thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, Eric is one of a team who put together a very exciting new book called The Swords of George Washington. Uh, and it's its uh, release is coinciding with an exhibit at Mount Vernon in which we're bringing together many of the swords of George Washington. So congratulations on the book and I look forward to to seeing the actual swords. Well, thank you very much. Now, Eric, why don't you talk a little bit about um, your background and you're a curator now and how did you you enter into the curatorial field?
2: That's a pretty tough question to uh, answer (laughs) and very often interns will ask about my career path how did you become curator of this material at Colonial Williamsburg right. well and it sounds like a fascinating job I, mean, I love yeah. my job I think I have one of the best jobs in the country yeah. uh, you know my two primary areas of interest are military material culture of the 18th century mm. and of course the coins, medals, and paper money of the same uh, period yeah. and for what I truly love I curate the two best collections of that stuff around mm. mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's really wonderful but whenever I'm asked about my career, yeah, think, how did you get there? The greatest job, as you say. <laughs> I, I shy away from explaining it to, to students because I, it's it's not the kind of thing that can be followed or replicated. I wouldn't even recommend attempting it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I got hooked on the American colonial period when I was a little boy, and mm-hmm. it's it's something that just seeped into into my soul and has never left. And
1: I, um, you grew up in Queens and, and went to school in Long Island. Yeah. So why why was the colonial period so interesting up there? See, I'm from Williamsburg, so I get the colonial period. Oh, you are. Oh, I am. Wonderful. Yeah. So so I you know I'm kind of stuck with it in a way. But what about you? Where where did that love for colonial history come from?
2: Well, I, I started collecting coins as a little kid. I, I like the idea that a coin told you where it was from and mm. when it was made. And I like the idea of here's a coin from 1772. Maybe George Washington had it in his hand. You never know.
1: Yeah. And yeah, that tangible connection to material cul- culture can bring you. I have to admit, I'm kind of fascinated by Roman coins for that uh, same thing. Yeah, it's me a, too. You know, <laughs> the, the, the ancient world actually did exist. You know, there yeah. it is. So Anyway, so coins. So.
2: Yeah, coins were, uh, were my link. And I, I probably have to say that the fourth grade history textbook I had was illustrated with these wonderful sepia-colored wash drawings. Mm. And mm. the Christmas I was in fourth grade... We did the American Revolution and Valley Forge and the Battle of
0: Bunker Hill
2: and George Washington, and I was fascinated by it. Mm. And over Christmas break, my folks took me to Old Bethpage Village Restoration. Of course, yeah. Where I saw all these old-timey houses. Uh, One or two of them were actually from the colonial period. Mm. And it, it just hooked me. I bought a little toy cannon, and uh, mm-hmm. you know the interpreter in the general store gave me a corn cob checker, and <laughs> I, I've been hooked ever since. Yeah. And so, so, do you still collect coins? Then, actually, or I tiny did. cannons. I collect everything. <laughs> My kitchen is filled with turn of the century New York City street signs, and I is it really? I collect all sorts of weird stuff. But you're I, not a hoarder. You wouldn't describe yourself. No, well. I'm very discerning. Okay. Uh, the first criteria is can I afford it? <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's
1: interesting. So, so, so let's continue that path then. So, you, you say you have had a circuit circuit circuitous route uh, to become a curator. So, you went from uh, a lover of these things, a true amateur in the sense of the word, uh, to now a professional. How did you make that transition? Was there a graduate program involved? Was no. There-
2: no, uh, no. Nope, nope. What uh, do we I, have? I, I, I'm a highly motivated lazy person. I love the idea. Of <laughs> I, sitting, doubt, yeah. I doubt that very much. <laughs> I love the idea of sitting still and doing nothing, but I, I never mm. can do it. Um, <laughs> throughout most of my childhood and through my teenage years, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, going for an, uh, with an anthropology Rain is a lost ark, right? No, it was before that. Okay, okay. I used to bury my sister's Barbie dolls in the backyard so I could <laughs> dig up mummies. You know, I'd wrap them in gauze. And, my parents were convinced I was going to be an axe murderer of some oh sort. Oh, my goodness. Well, well, now at least you know how to fake age things. Right? Yeah, fake age things, right. But plastic Barbie dolls never going to fool anybody. <laughs> at least not the curators I know. Built to last. So I decided uh, on archaeology, and about two years into my, uh, mm. my bachelor's, I decided, you yeah, know, this isn't really practical. And I had a pension for art. Mm. I wanted to get out of Long Island, so I went to art school in New York City. Mm. I went to Parsons School of Design, and I studied fine art and illustration and things like that. Uh, by the time I was um, a junior, I had decided I didn't want to do that either. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So uh, I was a coin collector. I used to go to all the coin shows. And I became friendly with uh, a number of young, younger gentlemen, men in their 30s, who owned an auction house. that was sort of like a poor man's Christie's or Sotheby's. Mm. They were on East 57th Street. Mm. And they auctioned off anything from... Americana, ancient art, pre-Columbian art, mm-hmm. Roman, Greek, Are they still card, around? Stamps, no. Yeah. They were called Harmer Rook Numismatists, and they've, they've been out of business for probably 20 years. Mm-hmm. They offered me a job. Ah, mm. So rather than, you know, really scrape and try to make a living as a freelance artist, I got this really good job in an auction house. The salary was good. Mm. I had to show up in a jacket and tie every day, but, um, It was fantastic.
1: Well, it's kind of forces you to research so many different things, their origins, their significance, how they were made, what they were used
2: for. So it sort of fit. I can see how you became a curator out of that role. Right. And the volume of material, it's almost like every auction brought in a new collection. mm -hmm. So rather than just seeing the same old two or three 18th century bottles that you might see in, in collection storage, I saw... Twenty different ones every few months mm. things like that so i i yeah. got a, a chance to really develop a sense for what certain areas of material culture should look like
1: so a practical education yes. in material culture uh to go along with a natural curiosity and interest it's uh that's a that's a powerful combination Yep. but uh, so what is the relationship between the curatorial world and the auction world i think that they i kind of think of them as sides of the same coin but maybe maybe you have a better way to think about them I,
2: I think it's absolutely true I know there's a what's a politically correct antagonism putting, yeah there's not really antagonism a sno- a you know. snootiness let's say some of my uh, my curatorial <laughs> colleagues yeah. in and out of the foundation have uh, always introduced me and said Eric has become a curator he came to us from the dark side as ah, yeah, if right. auction houses are illegal because you know the profit side. Yeah, yeah yeah, the, the profit side exactly. so it's got a profit and non-profit side but that was never my impetus to get into it I, you right. know, I never set out to make a lot of money I wanted to be near this stuff yeah. I like seeing the stuff examining it discussing it studying it if I was around it I was happy doing it yeah. and I ended up uh, going out on my own I did work for a, a fellow in New Jersey who specialized in ancient Greek and Roman coins for a while mm. then uh, one thing led to another and my wife and I decided let's get out of New York City you know Let's move somewhere where she can get chicken fried steak and somewhere I wanted to be near <laughs> Colonial Williamsburg because <laughs> of the library down there. I had a lot of contacts, mm. and they had some soft money to sort of float a two-year curatorship of the numismatic collection. Said, mm. They offered yeah. it to me. I said, "Great, That's I'd love great. to do it." Yeah. I said, "But you, you have to give up the commercial stuff," and I said, "I can't do that for a temporary position." Right. Right at the same time that their previous curator of Mechanical Arts, a, a fellow named Jay Gaynor, um, he became Director of Historic Trades, and Ron Hurst, my boss, and I hashed out a plan where we combined the two mm. disciplines mm-hmm. into a full-time permanent job, and, and that's how it happened. Yeah. So I basically waltzed into a full curatorship of Colonial Williamsburg, having never worked for a museum in my life. Oh, that's fantastic. But I was self-motivated. Yeah. Uh, I think by that point, I had published four textbooks. Yeah, so you were clearly the expert,
1: then expert. Um, so, in, the, in your role there then, because of its relationship with the historic trade, so do you, you curate a collection, but then do you also oversee sort of reproductions of yes. those
2: items? Is that yes. what I'm imagining? Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Every, anything and everything. Yeah. Uh, I could be working one day with products, deciding you know, what the new line of reproduction 18th century coins looks like, yeah. or I could be working with somebody from historic trades who's replicating an object from the collection. For use in the historic area. Okay, now one of the things I just read yesterday,
1: or maybe someone shot me it on Twitter, was that Colonial Williamsburg is going to have a musket firing range. Yeah. Opening. What, what is that? Where did this come from?
2: And are you involved in that? I am involved in it. Yeah. Um, it came from our the new administration that's running the place has Mitchell a, Reese and Mitchell friends. Reese yeah. And friends, uh, Mike Holtzman, um, are very very proactive in finding new interesting and exciting programs to engage our guests um the museums are great the historic area is great but let's get some more excitement let's get some more things that people can do and try well we all know there's a concern uh,
1: about lack of visitation to historic sites in general Williamsburg I know has done better in the past and uh, you know and the question is why and how do you engage and and you're competing in Williamsburg alone with things like Bush Gardens and others, which can be partners. I know in, in many yeah, ways and we'll as well. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. So this
2: uh, this shooting range, where where is it going to be? By the way, uh, the shooting range. Uh, if you know, um, I can't remember the name of the street. I never think of street names. I think it's I know South the England Duke of street. Gloucester Street. That's right. the one I really know. All the side streets, you'd you get me lost. It's so. it's right on the main drag that uh, is perpendicular. Okay. The one the going road. down to the Capitol? No, right uh, the one that dead ends into the Powder Magazine. It, I I think it's oh, on the yeah. street. Yeah, yeah. So where right the by Lodge the Market is. Square there, basically. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's um, maybe a couple of miles. So it's south the one that. that the the palace is down the one end, right? Nope, nope, nope. Oh. It just it <laughs> literally dead ends at, at Nicholson Street where the powder magazine okay. is. All right, yeah. So yeah. you go to the south oh, there sense. and it's it's way off down into the woods. Oh it is, okay. So it's it you know, it's you can't just drive up there and go shooting. It's only accessible you know with a pre pre-reserved and paid ticket and you're shuttled there from the lodge sure right oh so for so, lodge mm-hmm. okay uh, obviously safety is paramount but you know guess we'll get a chance to go there and <laughs> yeah. and live fire a reproduction brown best musket or a Fowler oh that's great and uh, so it, a
1: fouling piece or a brown best musket mm-hmm. any
2: pistols or no pistols too dangerous not at this point pistols are dangerous because you can pull the trigger around real quick and and have your hand in front of it. Uh, Our people will be... Cannon? What about cannons? Not yet. I'd love cannons, but we'll see. A carronade or something? Maybe a small, maybe a swivel gun or a A blunderbuss. Maybe a signal cannon. You could do that. We do signal cannons in the historic area all the time anyway. Not with live rounds. They're boring
1: to you already. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. What What are the targets?
2: British? Redcoats? No. Uh, Loyalists? Somebody came out and said that they were... There was going to be a chance to shoot at a figure of no, King George III. That's the golden no-no. I yeah, mean, that's probably a bad idea. Maybe it was acceptable in the 18th century if you were in Boston and you were a redcoat. That's no. you could squirrels shoot squirrels for the piece, Perhaps um, we're going to be shooting. Uh, I think the first run of targets are mm. uh, graphics of 18th-century bottles. Okay. So not because, just targets. Yeah, they're, they're not just targets. They're not just bullseye. Well, the idea is, it, well, if you hit the thing, you know, you get to take it home with you as a souvenir. Okay, I was so, I was saying you could put actual reproduction eighteenth century bottles out. Eventually, I'd like to do that. Yeah,
1: sounds like you're 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 one of the people pushing the edge here. Uh,
2: uh, I don't know if I would push the edge, but I, I think we can certainly do a lot more. Yeah. Like, uh, I'd like to find whoever had the idea for doing uh, an eighteenth century Halloween and, and give him or her a big hug. Mm. I think we need to be doing more stuff like that. Right, we we
1: have a Halloween here. Yeah, yeah. that's at Mount Vernon. I mean, you know, we're yeah.
2: constantly talking about how do we stay re- relevant to you know yeah. modern American culture, and that's one of the ways we can do it.
1: History relevance and education are so crucial, and, and I can imagine the educational opportunities at a at a shooting range would be legion. I mean, you know, yeah. because you can talk all all about. Of course, the weapon itself, the powder, the ball, but its, it's role in warfare, its role in the community, the, the, the fouling piece is a whole other dimension added to it. Yep. You've got artisans, I guess,
2: at CW who are making locks
1: uh-huh. at the very least. Uh,
2: we have gunsmiths that can make every last element of a, a rifle or a fowler or a musket. Did 18th firearm. century Williamsburg have a, a locksmith? They had a gunsmith. They had a gunsmith. Um, they also, we also had the armory. Mm. So they're course, uh, right. more or less they're, they're cobbling together firearms from
1: yeah. pieces, broken bits broken of others. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're depending on their main supply from other places. Well, that's fascinating. That's really exciting stuff. But before we get into the book, which I I want to talk about, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I, I now that I know your background, I see you're wearing a necklace which has some kind of coin on it. Yeah, what is that? Describe it for the listening
2: audience. This is a, a very good reproduction of a Massachusetts oak tree shelling. Oh is yeah, a type of silver. Seventeenth century. Seventeenth century. This is the sort. I didn't that realize
1: was... they were that large. I, I guess I always thought of them as much smaller, like yeah, half that. They're
2: size. pretty big. Uh, this so one. It's might... about.
1: I'm just describe it. It's about the size of a quarter in yeah. terms of its diameter.
2: Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bigger. It's uh, it's fairly crude. It's got a crude oak tree in the middle. The, the legend yep. says. Uh, um, Massachusetts in New England and Dom for Anno Domini in the date 1652 when the uh, the coinage was authorized. Yeah. But uh, this piece is of a type that would have been struck in the 1660s, and uh, it's one of my favorite coinage series. So yeah. I got a good reproduction, and it's it's sort of like my good luck necklace. Do you own a real one? How many uh, are there known? I oh, they're they're out there. Okay, that's the nice thing about coins: are that yeah. they're mass produced. Yeah. So, th- but that's an old one run. that.
1: Yeah, I don't know how long it. Lasted. I mean, the British forbid minting certainly by 1660. I don't know how quickly they stopped. Oh, they
2: forbid it from the beginning. The yeah. you know the yeah. the New Englanders were getting away with something, yeah, uh, the but they I put see. an end to it in the 1680s. But the coins circulated well straight on through the colonial period.
1: Okay. All right. So let's talk about the swords of George Washington. Sure. Now, this project. Tell me a little bit about its background. Now, you you produced this book uh, in. Uh, in alliance with Stuart Mowbray and Brian who I've met Brian, but uh, I don't know Stuart. But uh, tell me a little bit about th- where
2: the book came from. Um, all three of us were, uh, were an essential part of this book. So this isn't the kind of book where it could be easily done uh, for a number of reasons. Um, I did the writing because I, I study 18th century swords. Stuart Mowbray has his own you know uh well his own publications house that specializes in antique arms right he's also one of the best material culture photographers i've ever seen in my life Mm. and brian hendelson had the uh you know the the foresight to realize there's there's a use for this Mm. and he made sure it happened with with without his financial support it, it couldn't have it couldn't have come together so we were you know we were the necessary triumvirate to produce this book
1: Well, it's a beautiful book. I'll say that right right up front. And uh, for the listening audiences, as I I, I said to Eric before we got on the uh, recording here, so I haven't had a chance to to look at it. So we're going to depend on him to take us through uh, all the way. But the first thing I'll mention right off the bat is the great dedication that Eric has here in the book, which is, uh, it's just a Karen and Kivy
2: Goldstein who brought me to Mount Vernon when I was a kid. Yeah. And now you're back as an adult. All the way from New York City. And it was... uh, I remember, it was the summer of, I think, 75 or 76, and it was hot as the dickens. Well, that's and the bicentennial. I mean, yeah, that's a good it was, time it to it go. It was at the height. It was amazing. Yeah. And, you mm-hmm. know, it was a long, long drive, and it, mm. it was a life-changing visit. In mm. fact, I still have the guidebook you that did. I bought then, and yeah. I have the little George Washington souvenir coin that I bought that day. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when I step up to the podium tonight, it's going to be in my pocket. Oh, I still that's have fantastic. It. You know, to me, this is uh, this is such a great honor, and it's... You know, when I think to myself that my name is on the cover of a book about Washington swords and it hadn't been done before, I, mm. I'm just mm. so flattered that I had a chance to, to contribute to the scholarship surrounding Washington. Oh, uh, well, this is
1: this is great. Let's dig into that. Why hadn't it been done
2: before? I don't know.
1: Um, <laughs> That's it's, not a it's, good it's answer. A, it's Gary. a no-brainer. I'm <laughs> yes. guessing it probably
2: uh, had to do with logistics. Mm-hmm. Um, a book like this couldn't have been done Thirty or forty years ago, just because to do something like this in full color, mm-hmm. with this kind of photography, mm-hmm. uh, the cameras didn't exist. Um, it certainly would have been prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Um, so I. Well, I, I think it's, yeah,
1: this will come out. I think in part of the in part of the story that you tell yeah. about what happened to the swords, right? It, so exactly. Is one reason it wasn't done it's because the swords are scattered. Swords and, are all over the know, place. They're it, between Albany and Virginia. Right. So you know, let's let's talk about that. So The Swords of George Washington is a book which uh, does what? What are the things that you, you do in this book?
2: I kind of realized after it was finished that this was a sword-related anthology. Mm. It's a series of strongly intertwined short stories. Mm. You know, we take each sword, we look at their form, their function, when they were made, how they were made, what Washington did with them, and then we trace them through time after Washington's death. Mm -hmm. And some of them have just absolutely amazing
1: stories. Well, Well, let's get into that right now. First off, how many swords did Washington have that we
2: know of? There are nine and sort of a half Mm. covered in the book. Mm -hmm. We know of 11 for sure that he owned, but uh, I would bet there were more. Mm. How many more, I, I couldn't say.
1: So why so many? Why does George Washington have nine swords? Why does a man of his, uh, uh, of his time, well, of course, we know of his eminence, why, why did he have nine swords? Do you think he'd have one sword and use that over and over again?
2: Well, that would be kind of boring. Do you have one tie <laughs> and one <laughs> pair
1: of shoes, you know? Yeah, well, that's um, a good way to put it. So yeah. it's, a, it's an
2: accessory. A, a sword, in addition to being a weapon, mm. is uh, an absolutely crucial item of, of male costume at the period. Mm -hmm. There are a number of different types of swords. Uh, Washington really only liked two different types of swords. He liked the more formal small sword with a long, straight, needle-like blade, Mm -hmm. and he liked Kato's, which were sort of a genteel riding cutting sword with a curved blade that would also double for military purposes. Mm -hmm. I would bet Washington never slashed at anybody with with the swords you're seeing here, I mean. they're, they're largely symbolic at this time period on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. An officer would not be seen without his sword, mm-hmm. but if he was fighting with it, it was a last-ditch, desperate attempt at self-defense.
1: Now, do gentlemen still wear swords in the yes. 18th century? That You know, civilians, as we would think mm-hmm. of, as part of their uh,
2: accoutrement, part of their costume? Yes. And all of Washington's swords, with, with a few exceptions, uh, probably did double purpose. Mm. The ones that kind of fall outside of the stuff he would have worn every day are the sorts of swords that were given to him. Mm-hmm.
1: Where, where are places in the 18th century, if you're a gentleman, that you wouldn't wear a sword? The outhouse. Like church or something? I mean, do you wear them when you go in public yep. in general everywhere? Yep.
2: Yep. going <clears> to <throat> uh, okay. no need to wear them around the house. It's a it's a more formal thing. It's do going we know out of any Right. You're not wearing them when you're riding around your plantation
1: doing your day. Well, you might. Products. You might have a light cutting sword. No. Yeah. What about his father? Do we know of any father swords or Lawrence's swords? Well,
2: we, there's one sword covered in the book, the first one in the book, which is the, uh, the onyx-handled kato. Okay. That's 17th century. And this is one of the, uh, the first story that we analyzed where the sword was, was drastically misunderstood for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to being the only sword identified from the 1802 estate sale, being the saw sword yeah. sold to uh, Spotswood, Yes, so this one, as you can imagine, looks like a little saw. It's got the serrated blade all the way down. It sort of looks like a giant bread knife. It does. It's a vicious-looking thing. But this is a hunting sword. It's a large knife. And in theory, these saws, or the sawback on the sword blade, was meant as a sort of a light auxiliary tool, maybe Mm -hmm. if you had to dismember or butcher game in the field. Although I I, I can't see this being very practical. But this sword has been misunderstood forever because of the engraving on the blade. Excuse me, the etching on the blade, which has been interpreted as a crown over GW. Oh,
1: like, yes, yes right. Now William Sir, and Mary. Is, exactly, see, right? it's William and Mary. <laughs> Those of us from Williamsburg know this no, immediately. It's William and, and Mary. Like, oh, uh, that, and the first time I saw uh, that, yeah. I
2: went, Are you kidding me? Washington would never have a sword blade with his initials under a royal crown. Yeah, yeah, My that's, God. Uh, that's absolutely right. And yeah. so William and Mary tightly dates the sword to 1689 mm. to 1694, mm-hmm. which means this is an ancestral sword. This is decades older than George Washington was. This must have been an inherited piece. Oh, that's exciting. So Whose it was, I don't know. And this is the
1: first time you've
2: published this?
1: Or, it's or the first is time anybody's old.
2: published it because uh, other people who have written about this sword have regurgitated the yeah. old mistake that yeah. it's got his initials on the blade.
1: Well, that's what's so uh, interesting about history, particularly when you're in something in, in such depth that you can sort of relook at it and, and try to reinterpret it. And so many, you realize so many of the, the kind of tales that we tell have no foundation. Right. Uh, or they have a foundation in a mistake that someone made. Or a yeah. guess that someone made and then it, it turns into fact. Did you yep. find that with other swords as well here? Uh-huh. Okay, well give me another one then. We won't go through, quite, um, we won't go directly through. The so-called morning sword? Yes.
2: It's not a morning sword. Tell
1: me about the morning sword. It was uh, a
2: black Handled sword. Exactly. A morning yeah. sword is exactly he that. You would have gotten for somebody's death and to wear it at funerals. Yes, funeral you moment. wear them at funerals. They usually have black end hilts. Uh, the bindings on the grip are very often uh, black horsehair. Mm. I'm, it's a black sword. The so called right. morning sword is a bright brass hilted sword. And it's not a small sword, it's actually uh, a pattern regulation French military epée or officer's sword. Okay. Just so happens, it's exactly the type of sword that uh, the Marquis de Lafayette was giving to his friends and officers under his command after he uh, returned to America in 1780. Oh, yeah. So, I can't prove it. But so we I, own this. The Mount Vernon Ladies Association uh-huh. owns the sword, and you're basically saying this is a Lafayette sword. I bet Lafayette gave it to his, his, his I like dear that friend, better and than
1: a, I like that better than a mourning sword. So, where did the credit from a mourning sword come from? I have no was idea. You don't know. It was just uh, it's what a 19th call century it. thing. Yeah.
2: Uh, this is the sword. What does was... the Mount Vernon staff
1: think about your argument? I, I believe...
2: Or do they even know it? I mean, oh, they, 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 they know well, it now, Susan, of course. Susan's all well, words. Susan, Susan has gone through this book and, <clears throat> <clears throat> and throat> no, I know she, she yeah, 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 everything yeah. I got wrong and <laughs> went, wow. You yeah, know, yeah. I think you're right. Um, now, even though it's technically not a morning sword, could it have one time to- at yeah. one time have been painted black and used as a morning sword? Maybe, but this thing was so uh, horribly stored mm. during the Civil War and then subsequently cleaned up yeah. that maybe, maybe it had been altered at some point in its life.
1: Who had this sword?
2: Uh, that sword was chosen by uh, Judge Bushrod Washington. Okay. It descended to Lewis William Washington and then Lewis William Washington traded it for another sword. Another Washington sword. Another Washington sword to his cousin, uh, John Augustine Washington, mm-hmm. uh, the one that was killed in the Civil War. The, the third, sw- the one who owned Mount Vernon. The right. Yeah. They swapped swords at Mount Vernon some point before 1859, because when Lawson comes through in 1859, the, uh, the epee, the so-called morning sword, is already at Matford, it's here. Mount Vernon. so it's by somehow made point. it way back. Well, yep. that's, uh, you mentioned the choosing, and I think that's one of the great
1: stories of Washington yeah. swords. Why don't you tell people... Uh, why Washington's swords were scattered,
2: I guess. How did? What, what do you mean Bushrod chose this sword? Well, uh, uh, under the terms of Washington's will, he left a, a very specific set of directions to how he wanted his swords dis, uh, dispersed. Um, he named five nephews, and he said each of these nephew is to have his choice in the order that he lists them. Um, and it's interesting to see who chose what and it's interesting that uh, Washington used the phrase uh, swords or cutto, uh, of which I may die possessed. And by telling us that, he's telling us that however many swords I have at the moment, because people give me swords, I get rid of swords, and a number of the swords covered in the book were lifetime gifts. Yeah. Like one of them went to uh, yeah. the so-called Braddock sword, which is also here at Mount Vernon, that was given to uh, George Lewis at some point during Washington's lifetime. Um, George Lewis also had the choice of a, a sword, and the um, the lion headed cato, which went to John Augustine Washington during Washington's lifetime. Um, it's interesting because he wasn't one of the named nephews. Probably, well, actually, he was dead at the moment, so mm. he was dead. But he predeceased Washington, so forget about that whole thing. <laughs> that kind of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things that we did do with this book when we realize, as we're going through the successive generations of Washington's and Lewis's you see the same names over and over again there are two different William Washington's yes Yes. so uh, in the back of the book the reader will find uh, a, a biographical dictionary oh, of all helpful. the players yeah. and which swords they owned and their lifespans
1: oh, that's great so, so looking at these looking at, at the book um, I love uh, this sword with the green me too handle
2: uh, ivory Handle. Yes. Talk a little bit about that sword and, and its story. That's the Bailey Cutto. Okay. Um, we don't know exactly when Washington bought it. Silver and ivory-hilted Cutto. Yes. Uh, he certainly purchased it sometime in late 1778 or early 1779, at a time when uh, he was in the West Point, New York area, with mm-hmm. the rest of the Continental Army. John Bailey was uh, a very accomplished sword cutler who was trained in Sheffield, England, worked in New York City, and when the British kind of sailed into the harbor, he saw the ratting on the wall, and he headed north up the Hudson River Mm. and had a number of shops throughout the Hudson River Valley over the course of the Revolution. Washington, obviously, was aware of uh, Bailey's products and chose to do a lot of business with them. Mm. Um, There are some suggestions that even minor things like and knives were purchased or acquired from John Bailey. Mm. Uh, obviously, mm. this sword came from Bailey. His signature is on the blade, mm. and it's it's a magnificent piece of work. It's absolutely stunning. So where did he use this one? Um, I would bet this is the sword he carried on most of his as part of his uniform. Yep. Uh, Peel painted him wearing it in his uh, 1779 dated canvas uh, that has the Battle of um, Princeton going on in the background?
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful painting. That's the one at CW down that's, in the DeWitt Wallace Gallery. Springs, yep. and the, it, it, when you first come in, it's the big thing you see. Um,
2: yeah, I see it here in the in the picture. It's, it's interesting though, uh, as Susan Schulberg pointed out, that even though this painting was dated uh, 1779, mm-hmm. the, the event that's uh, depicted, the Battle of Princeton, was 1777. Washington wouldn't have worn that sword at that battle because he didn't own it yet. <laughs> mm. well, that is interesting. Uh, so. <clears throat> and, and Emmanuel Leutze has this sword. It's sort of a cartoon of that sword. Okay. It's clearly meant to be the green handled ivory cutto, but the details are wrong. So, did, how did, did, had Leutze seen it, or is he trying to copy from Peel? Leutze must have seen it. Yeah. I, or or I, I shouldn't say must have seen it, i bet he had seen it because. Uh, uh, the ivory hilted kato was the first of Washington swords to come to the the public eye, uh, when you know Samuel Washington, <clears throat> the son of the Samuel Washington who was bequeathed by George Washington, right, his brother, he he donates it to the United States, so it becomes property of the American people by act of Congress in 1843, mm-hmm. and it would seem that with the um, with the exception of certain times where the sword traveled, like for the, uh, the 1876 Centennial Expo where it was mm-hmm. on exhibit, mm-hmm. it was almost always on display at the U.S. Patent Office mm-hmm. before it was transferred uh, to the care of the, uh, the Smithsonian Institution. So this is a uh, this is a great relic of, of America's birth, and I would bet it's always on exhibit. I know it's on exhibit right now.
1: So what are some of the... Uh what are some of the crazy? Well, it's on exhibit here at Mount Vernon right now. Yeah. <laughs> what What are some of the crazy stories of the swords as they wandered around from, from Washington's ownership to relic to, uh, uh, I don't know, to forgotten thing. I mean, what What are the?
2: Give me Give me something good. Crazy stories. Yeah. Um, going back to the so-called Morning Sword, which yes. is uh, the sword from Lafayette, that spent the Civil War in it, in a in a pigeon house, hidden hidden. It was hidden with the family silver from uh, marauding Union troops. So where do you put something as mm. as valuable and as treasured by all Americans as Washington's sword? You hide it where nobody's going to look for it.
1: Well, soldiers often look for pigeons to eat. I don't they look think. For pigeons, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's so. That's uh, an interesting.
2: Now, is one of the swords connected to John Brown? At yeah, all? and there was good yeah. reason that John Augustine Washington III sought <laughs> to have that sword hidden, mm. was because. A few years earlier, in 1859, uh, the steel-hilted smallsword that's now in the collection of the New York State Museum was targeted and stolen on behalf of John Brown, who actually had it on his hip. He was wearing it as a a talisman and a connection to the great man um, as he was conducting his insurrection. So Brown saw himself connected to Washington as a liberator? I think he saw himself as the heir to Washington's legacy. He was going to liberate the slaves... And having you know this sort of uh, I don't know, maybe a, a supernatural talisman like yeah. one of Washington's swords is was something he sought out. Well, that's fascinating. Unfortunately, in, in, in addition to stealing the sword, he also stole the man who owned it. <laughs> he, uh, he he took Lewis William Washington, the owner of the sword, as hostage. Fascinating. So, yeah, he can't make this stuff up.
1: Now, uh, so all these kinds of stories are throughout the book itself. Um, you know, it, it's really a tremendous. What, what do you think, uh, in, in more general terms, about uh, the material culture of the era that, uh, that sometimes historians don't take enough attention to
2: that you, you feel like you, you want to remind people about material culture? I like to follow an object through time. Mm-hmm. You know, at Colonial Williamsburg, we think of Object X for what it is, how it was created, and how it was used immediately. Don't often think of the Revolutionary War musket that saw service in the Civil War. Mm. I'm very interested in all of that stuff.
1: Is there a lot of Revolutionary War muskets that showed up in the Civil War? Yeah.
2: They were still being used. They were converted to percussion, and Mm -hmm. they were used especially by the Confederates. Right. We also see things like New York-made cavalry sabers from the Revolution being used straight on up through the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So Mm. I I love following objects that are repaired and altered to remain useful throughout a long span of time. When did That's men? Really when
1: did men stop wearing swords, if they were just well dressed civilians like going to a ball?
2: Probably at, at the end of the 19th century.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I would imagine. You know, with certain, it's probably appropriate to wear a dress sword. Uh, you know, with certain uniforms. Yes, in the military. Certainly, today. the navy. Yeah. I, I know. Yeah. Uh, Marines. Yeah.
1: So. Uh, so and, and there's a and there's a major sword collecting community as yes. well.
2: Yes. Uh, are there any George Washington swords in private hands that the, you know of? Yes, there is only one. Mm-hmm. That is the actually um, the last of the Washington swords to leave the family. Um, it was so. It's still with family members. No, oh. no. It was uh, the possession of William Lanyard Washington, who died in 1933. When he died, the sword went to his widow, and when she passed away in 1950, it went up for auction. Mm. It was bought on behalf of a a prominent New York arms dealer, an arms collector, Mm. who sold it to another very prominent American sword collector named Dr. John Latimer, who in itself, uh, he's a very, very interesting man. Uh, Latimer becomes the only man alive with one of Washington's swords. He lends it to the Smithsonian, or excuse me, the National Portrait Gallery, where it, it hung underneath one of their portraits of Washington, and it was recently uh, sold by private transaction to a, a fellow you and I know well. Okay, who who was it? Brian Hendelson. Of
1: course, <laughs> Brian's gonna. Okay. I don't know if he wants that up on the podcast. Oh, okay. Well, we It's, can it's in the
2: book, but take that you know. Yeah,
1: okay, let me mark the time here. Well, let me ask you this: Have if, if you ever uh, served in the role of advising on a movie? You know, in terms of the the uh, the authenticity or accuracy of any of the. I have not the weapons
2: i I've yeah. occasionally, i occasionally i i think to curate this material you have to try your hand at not only using it but making it yeah so i do a lot of sheet metal work right. traditional sheet metal work and really? I, i've made props for certain movies mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. uh like most people at colonial williamsburg that work with their hands we, we very often get asked to you know make nice things for lead actors or, but uh, now uh, they, they i would love to have steered uh, Johnny Depp towards some better swords for Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah, so what, what, I mean, what is the big mistake you see in period pieces with swords? They try to slash with them. They don't... They're, they're hacking away with reckless abandon yeah. in a, a silly some Chopping fashion. wood. Yeah, chop, chopping wood, who knows. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, with that motion kind of, you know. Yeah.
2: Know. Uh, Washington's
1: often painted with his sword sort of pointing, you know, kind of like, mm-hmm. it, would that have been a, a way that he would have led on the field Waving hat, yes, sword.
2: yeah. Officers, if if he's commanding in the field, if you're uh, leading a charge or advancing, you you're pointing with your sword. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh,
1: well, uh, congratulations on the work. This is really exciting stuff. Thank you. We Thank look forward you. to hearing from you, of course, tonight. And I encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of the Swords of George Washington. It really is a beautiful book filled with all sorts of mysteries and great things. Is there anything? Else, about any sword we haven't
2: spoken about that might be one of your favorites to talk about. They're kind of all my favorites. I, I, I love each and every one of them. Yeah. Uh, having examined them together as a group, I, mm. there's so much more understanding. This is a situation where the you know the sum of the parts is is, is greater yeah. than each individual. You know, I yeah. mean it's it's just it's just mind-boggling.
1: Well, for those of us who love George Washington, I think it's, it's such a tangible connection to him. Uh, swords that he chose he chose to wear that he you know that, that he used uh, in
2: in battle and in other in other ways you know as part of his costume he, he thought enough of them to see to it that you know uh, the male members of his family mm. received them because he knew they would take care of them and cherish them and did, they weren't
1: did he surrender a sword at Fort Necessity or did he was he not required to or was it given back
2: to him or do we know I honestly don't know yeah I'm assuming the sword he had at fort necessity would be the 1753 small sword. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would assume he didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it was such a small enough action. I think the French were more concerned with kind of well, moving he, Washington <coughs> along. Well, and I believe they. I mean, yeah. I believe they marched out with their, you
1: know, with colors yeah. and all that. And it wasn't. There a, was some looting of their baggage, but it wasn't.
2: Yeah, it wasn't... They left with honors. They didn't have prisoners. Right, right, right. It wasn't a, you are vanquished, and now we're going to drive you like dogs, and you will surrender everything. Yeah, Uh, uh, I think it was fairly honorable, so he would have kept his sword.
1: Well, we'll we'll end on that note of ambiguity. There's always
2: more things to know. know? There's more things to know. We know for sure of two swords that are... (laughs) Hopefully they still exist that, for some reason or another, have become separated from their histories, and maybe they'll, they'll bubble yeah. up to the surface. One
1: last question. When you go back to Colonial Williamsburg, what is sitting on your desk that you're working on right now in terms of material, culture, item that you're reproducing or trying to understand? Or I'm trying to...
2: Uh, I don't say, like,
1: budgets. I don't want to hear no, that. No, no, no. I, no, I, don't, I don't do budgets. <laughs> <so> thank <laughs> God. Um, yeah.
2: I'm working with very, very talented gentlemen who use hand tools... To engrave coin dies, and we're working on reproducing or making a set of the three different Virginia coins from the early 1770s, to reproduce them as exactly as possible for products. That's amazing, and it's a very exciting project.
1: Well, congratulations, good for you. you. This was a wonderful book. It's delightful for me to to meet you, and and uh, we look forward to uh, to hearing more from you. So to be
2: continued. Yes, thank you, thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.